0: Welcome to Mindset Meets Mastery with Arlene Gale. We're talking about the stories we tell ourselves, the mindsets, myths, and misinformation that can hold us back, and then turning our focus to action steps that bring about success mastery in business and life. The goals are to define success on our own terms and to master that success without excuses or apologies. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Mindset Meets Mastery this week. So I am Arlene Gale, and, you know, in an effort to be fully transparent, you know, I do cyber my guests <laughs> before I have them on because I want to know as much as I can about the topic, not because I I want to try and be an expert because there's no way I could do that with each person I have on. That's why I have them on. That's the whole point. They are the expert. So the topic today is trust. I have an expert who can speak on trust. So because of that, I spent a lot of time this last week thinking about what is trust? What is the definition of trust? Because those of you who know me, you know, I'm a writer and that's what I do. So I like words, but I also like to know meanings of words. What I came to was, yeah, I'm really not an expert on this trust thing at all because I can't really define trust. I think with trust, I know it when I feel it, but I don't know how to put that in words. And then I thought, well, to even further confuse myself, what's a good example of that? So let me tell you the example I came up with. Have you ever been at a networking meeting and you meet somebody, you shake hands, you talk back and forth, and it's a really good conversation, and then you leave that person and you think, wow, I really like that person. I would like to have lunch with them. I'd like to know more about them. I'd like to be able to see if we could work together or maybe I could refer to them. You leave and you feel really good about that exchange. So is that trust? Is hmm. But then on the other hand, you have those interactions. And I mean, you don't have to raise your hands or say, yeah, 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 because I know that you've had these interactions too where you meet somebody and you spend two minutes and they're talking at you and they're looking over your shoulder as if they're waiting for somebody more important to come in so they can rush away and talk to that person. And after a couple minutes of conversation, you know, you just you walk away and you really kind of want a 15 minute hot shower because you feel grimy and gross. And you think, yeah, I mean, I would never work with that person. So does that mean that they did not instill any trust in me? I don't, I don't know. So lucky for me and lucky for the rest of us, we have my guest expert today. His name is Dr. Yoram Solomon, and he actually really, truly did write the Book of Trust. So there. I mean, enough said, right? No, because there's so much more depth to him than that. He's written 12 other books, but he... And he's done like 300 articles. He was a creator of Wi-Fi and USB 3.0. He has 22 patents. But in the book of trust that he's written, which is what I want to focus on today, he has developed a trustworthiness model, which includes the eight laws of trust, the six components of trustworthiness, and he offers a seven-step action plan that allows people and organizations to be more trusted, and then also to know who to trust. And all of this expertise and information that he's developed, he's developed based on original, original research. So please help me welcome my special guest today, Dr. Yoram Solomon. Yay! Hi, Yoram. How are you today?
1: I'm great, Arlene. Good to be here with you.
0: Good to be. It's good to have you here. And you know, you've got so much expertise and so much wonderfulness about you that I, I could go on forever and ever about all of that. But, um, but I won't because I want to put you on the spot. Are you ready?
1: No, but but we have time. Well, why don't you? Yeah, that's up. I'm Enough fine. About me. Yeah. <laughs> Put me on the spot. Put
0: you on the spot. Okay, here goes. You on the truth.
1: You can't handle, you can't handle the, the truth. truth.
0: Okay, yeah. I see how it's going to be. Okay, it's not about truth. It's about trust. How do you define, as an expert, how do you define trust?
1: Well, it's kind of funny because it goes back to how did I end up dealing with trust? 30 years ago, I was an engineer. I worked for an engineer a big part of my life. And how do I end up talking about trust? Well, being an engineer, one of the things that was kind of my specialty was always to be the innovator. So I, I got fascinated by innovation, by the process of innovation, and at some point, I You know, when I was working on my Ph.D. dissertation, the topic I ended up coming up with is uh, why are people so much more creative when they work in startups than when they work in large, mature companies? And so uh, I did that and and two years of research, 348 page dissertation. and, And if you ask me to summarize it by like one sentence, I actually can summarize it by two words culture, innovation, culture. And so then I started researching culture, innovation, culture. And uh, what I found was that um, I can break it down into three elements. The super, the leader willing to give autonomy, the, uh, employee willing to be accountable. And then within the team or people, colleagues, peers at the same level, the willingness and the ability to hold a constructive disagreement. So I was just about finished, done writing my book number seven, Culture Starts With You, Not Your Boss. And uh, as it was being edited, I was meeting with a company to try and help them build a culture of innovation. So I'm asking them questions for about 20 minutes and within those 20 minutes, the, uh, what I realized is something very fundamental. They can't do all those three things that they need to do in order to build the right culture. And the reason is because there is no trust. And and I started thinking more and more and more about that. And when the book came back from editing, I added one more chapter, and this was the first time that I ever wrote and talked about trust. And so for that entire book, that was the one chapter that was never edited, that was really only edited by me. I think it was like a six page chapter. It's it's a relatively uh, small book uh, anyway. And from that moment on, I started researching trust. And since you asked what is the definition of trust, and that obviously was one of the most important things for me, and that is to define it. And and the way for me to define it, first look at the dictionary. Well, that was useless. Then look at other people and other researchers and other authors and, and speakers that talk about trust and see how they define it. And then start looking at different cases and different scenarios. And this is what helped me come up with the eight laws of trust, which is how trust behaves, the six components of trustworthiness, and eventually that seventh step. But it really starts with what is trust. And to me, the definition I use for trust, and it took me a while to come to that definition, it's your willingness to accept the possible negative consequences of giving control over something you have to someone or something else. I know it's a mouthful, and and it is in the book, uh, and, and every now and then I post this, but it's, again, your willingness to accept the possible negative consequences of giving control over something you have to someone or something else.
0: So in, in my head, what's coming up, which may, may terrify you, I don't know, um, <laughs> what's coming up for me is creating a safe place for dialogue. Is that part of trust?
1: Well, first of all, uh, I'm ex-35th Airborne. Not a lot of things terrify (laughs) me. (laughs) Now, that's a
0: whole different trust issue, getting into an airplane and doing the kinds of things that you had to do in your how many years of service flying for the Israeli Air Force? uh, Well, no, actually, uh, five
1: five years active, 10 years uh, uh, reserves. And then when I came here to the U.S., I, I volunteered as a pilot for the U.S. Air Force Civil Air Patrol. But you, you said something interesting. You said it's creating a safe place, and, and I disagree with that. Okay. Uh, and I'll tell you why. It's, it, it's not that I disagree with, with the concept. I, it's okay. I, I, no, no, no. I, I will <laughs> refine it a little for okay, you. So cool. there is something, there is a chart in my book where I say that trust depends or, or the level of trust correlates directly to your level of fear. And the level of fear correlates to the risk that you're taking. And and more specifically, to the perception of the risk that you're taking. I may not need to trust someone to do something simply because I don't really get how risky it is. So I need, I fear it less, and therefore I need a lower level of trust. If you think of this as a, a chart, okay, graph, where on the X uh, you have, on the X-axis you have the level of risk, the perceived level of risk, and uh, on the Y-axis you have the level of trust that you need to mitigate that risk. Anything, and, and think of this this being a line, a linear line, anything below that line is the danger zone. That means that, your perceived risk is higher than the level of trust you currently have. And everything above it is the safe zone. So you have more trust than what's needed, at least in your mind, to compensate for the level of risk that you're taking. So it's not that, that it's the safe zone. You have enough trust that is going to put you in the safe zone. If you don't have enough trust and you perceive higher risk, you're going to be in the danger zone. So I kind of refined what you yeah. were talking about in terms of a safe place.
0: Okay, I get that. So so are you saying then trust is based on my perception?
1: Oh, yes. The perception is a big word in the entire concept of trust and how you deal with trust and, and a lot of things that, that revolve around trust.
0: Okay, so if we're talking about trust in business and I I like what you're saying about the perception and the risk and all of that in business, this brings me to a topic that you speak on a lot and that's the selling based on trust instead of price. Can you explain that? Because I think that's a powerful concept and I think a lot of people do it wrong.
1: Yes. Yeah, so to your question, can I explain it? Uh, no, I just made it up. And I don't know, people started booking me to do that. And so, I, but seriously. Wing so it. Here, Wing
0: it. Yeah. You're a pilot.
1: So Wing here's, it. it was kind of interesting because I, as I did a survey a couple of years ago, when I asked a simple question and I started open-ended and the question was, what is the most important quality for you in other people? And I gave six types of people your boss, your employee, people working with you, your peers, colleagues, uh, a salesperson trying to sell you something, your government representative, and your spouse. And the question was, what is the most important quality for you in them? And I got a long list of qualities and narrowed them down based on how people responded to them. Then when I was down to five, I sent it out as a survey to a larger Sample, 363 uh, people to be uh, precise. And uh, then I just asked them to to rank uh, off the, actually, not even to rank off the top five, which one is number one? Well, trustworthiness came in as number one 61.2% of the time. So this is more than the next four combined. Okay. But the interesting thing is that one, trustworthiness was not the top one in one of those types, one of the six types of people. Trustworthiness was not number one. And I'm sure you're going to get back to me and ask, which one, but right now you asked about salespeople, salespeople, (laughs) in a salesperson coming to you, trying to sell you something, trustworthiness was ranked the highest, the absolute highest with 76.7%. And so I asked, you know, this is interesting. So if trustworthiness is the most important quality for you in salespeople in 76.7% of the time, then uh, are you willing to put your money where your mouth is? Mm. So the first question is, And and I asked, I provided a scenario. So this was a follow-on survey. And I provided a scenario. In this scenario, there were two salespeople coming to sell you. It was a $10,000 project. And the question was... um, uh, if they, you know, and I described it in, in detail, how one of them is very trustworthy. The, the the one who's trustworthy, you can see that they really care about you, care about what you get out of the project and not necessarily just what, uh, how they sell it and how quickly they get their commission. The mm-hmm. other one really came across as, as very untrustworthy based on those six components of trustworthiness that I developed. So I, I asked, I, I provided those two profiles and I asked people, When they came back and gave you the quote, the quote was for the same price, which one would you choose? 100% 100% said the trustworthy one, which is kind of obvious, but think about what this means. It means that when a trustworthy salesperson sells against an untrustworthy salesperson, the trustworthy salesperson gets the business 100% of the time. Not 90%, not 95%, not 99%, 100% of the time. But then I started asking Well, again, can you put your money where your mouth is? What Mm -hmm. happens if the trustworthy salesperson asks for 10% higher price? 100%. 100% would still go with the trustworthy one. 20%, 50%. And based on the responses that I got, because I gave really four options, I'm going to go with the trustworthy one, I'm going to go with the cheaper one. I'm not sure, but it's one of these two or four I'm not doing it with any of them because this one is too high and this one is untrustworthy. Based on that, I developed a a model, a formula that gave me this number. Note this, to be on equal footing, a trustworthy salesperson versus an untrustworthy salesperson, the the trustworthy salesperson can sell the same product and same service for 29.6% higher price, just to be on equal footing, just to be on a, you know, break-even point with an untrusted. I can sell it for 29.6% higher price if I'm trustworthy, and the other person is not.
0: There's so, money in it. Yeah, so there's money in that. So, okay, so back to which one, <laughs> remind us the question and the answer, which one? Which one Which was one was Oh, God.
1: I Which have one nine was okay. picked of
0: those six categories. Oh. So
1: here's so here's what happened. So, you know, on average, all six categories, 61.2%. However, and I was shocked in one of the categories, trustworthiness, was not number one. And the answer is right after this commercial. No, oh. I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> the answer is this: uh, leaders. When oh, really? I asked leaders. <laughs> And this created a whole new topic, because wow. when I asked leaders, what is the most important quality for you in your employees? Number one, 47.5%, almost half, willingness to work hard. Number mm. two, 39% was trustworthiness. But number one, was willingness to work hard. And and there is a statement that Henry Ford once said. Mm -hmm. He said, why is it that every time I ask for a pair of hands, they come with a brain attached? (laughs) Arlene, (laughs) this is 2020, and leaders still think this way. And to me, this is the leadership failure. There's, by the way, another side to it, and this is when I asked employees about leaders. Again, you know, this would fit within the other five where trustworthiness was number one. But number two, and this is the the only place where this was number two, because in other places it was lower, willingness to take risk. Employees want their leaders to take risk. Number one, they want them to be trustworthy. Number two, they want them to take risk. You know what? They want you to take risk on them. They want you to give them autonomy, which which kind of closed the loop with uh, what I found is missing in companies that are not innovative and not productive.
0: So, But doesn't that just kind of playing with words? Isn't that really the employee wants their leader to trust them, to yes. give them an assignment and then get out of the way so they can get it done?
1: Exactly. Exactly, and there is a great definition for uh, for what is required for creativity and, and the autonomy required from creativity by Teresa Amabile, who is someone that. I quoted her a lot in my dissertation because she did a lot of work on the environment for creativity in organizations. She said, and and this is, so what is autonomy? Is autonomy, Arlene, me telling you if you work for me, hey, do whatever you'd like? No, No. it's not gonna work. This is anarchy. This is not autonomy. (laughs) Uh, Autonomy is, I have to be the one choosing the mountain you're going to climb, but I should not tell you how to climb that mountain. It's actually, she puts it the other way around. She she reorders these. She says, it's letting you decide how to climb the mountain, not which mountain to climb.
0: Well, that, that makes a lot of sense because it's trust, but it's also, I guess, respect, because you feel like the leader has, your boss has trusted you and given you the respect for the skills that you have. And is willing to let you do what needs to be done because of those things,
1: which brings another very interesting point. And this is one of my eight laws of trust: is the trust is reciprocal. And what does it mean the trust is reciprocal? So, so I'm I'm going to share with you something that I do in my keynotes. I'm going to ask you a few questions. So, Uh you know, you, you have kids? Oh, yes. So okay. Too. Sometimes I sometimes you you didn't seem sure. By the way, uh, <laughs> no, so. I'm
0: scared because I have teenagers, and it's like, oh no, where is he going with this? <laughs>
1: yeah, no. So I'm gonna go back to when they they were crawling. Sometimes I have to go with I'm going with an audience, not necessarily audience of young people, and I go, how many of you have kids? you know, three quarters raise their hands and I'm like, well, for the rest, you know what kids look like. Good. (laughs) Good enough. So when they, you know, they start crawling and after they start crawling, one day they lift themselves up and they realize that they can stand. Mm -hmm. Well, the next thing after they realize they can stand is that they realize they can walk. And once they realize they can walk, the next thing that they're trying is that they can run. They can run, right? And the first time they run, they...
0: Fall down and hurt themselves. They
1: fall down and hurt themselves, exactly. And the first thing that they do when they fall down and hurt themselves is that they...
0: Look at me to see if I'm freaking out.
1: Okay, you just ruined it for me because typically I I get... We're going to have to re-record this session. (laughs) Typically what people say by
0: watching other parents who freak out. And as soon as they freak out, then their child freaks out. And I thought, I'm not going to do that.
1: (laughs) So, so this is uh, typically the answer I get is they cry. Well, no, they they get up and keep going. No, the first thing they did, and this is, you know, give yourself some a pat on the back. Okay. I'll, I'll wait until it's very good. Uh, So because you're one of very, very few people that notice that subtlety, because the first thing that they do is not cry, not get up and go. The first thing that they do is they turn around and they look at you. And when they look at you, they're trying to figure out what should their response be. Trust works the same way. We think of the reciprocity of trust and trustworthiness only in one way, and that is if you're trustworthy, you earn my trust, then I'm going to trust you. But it actually works the other way around. If you trust me, I will behave in a trustworthy way. Mm. And that's a subtlety that people don't necessarily get. There is that reciprocity. So, yeah, it it doesn't necessarily start with me being trustworthy. And this is, by the way, what the the book uh, Culture Starts With You, Not Your Boss is all about in in one of the workshops that that I do with organizations. Mm. Being accountable, being trustworthy can start with your boss trusting you, but it can start with you.
0: Okay, so that leads me to the question of, are people born understanding or knowing how to behave trust in a trustworthy way, or is that something that is we have to learn?
1: Well, fortunately enough, it is something you have to learn, because then I picked the wrong career. Uh, and and you know the fact that I have customers clients who are paying me uh, good good money to uh, to help them build trust and become trustworthy uh, means that this is not something that you're born with. Uh, you, you said at the beginning. I heard you say that um, you get a sense of when you can trust someone mm-hmm. and, and when not, uh, and I would say that I turned it into science in that maybe you have that feeling and, and something in, in the cover of the book, by the way, that my, my book, uh, the book of trust uh, has uh, in the subtitle has three things, be trusted, uh, I'm sorry, build trust, be trusted and know who to trust. And my focus is typically on the last two because the build trust is really part of those two, is, is a derivative of those two. So the, the foundation to have trust is that you're trustworthy and that you know who to trust. And, and so I turn it into science in that, first, I understand how trust behaves. That's the eight laws of trust. And second is I understand the components of trustworthiness. So if I share this with you, then your decision, you know, you're going by your gut. And, and if you read the Malcolm Gladwell's book, uh, Blink, then, then you would kind of get the sense of how gut feeling gets built and, and so on. But how about this? How about if instead of you doing it unc- subconsciously or unconsciously, if you do it subconsciously, how about if I help you do it consciously? How about if I give you those six components so that if you want to be trusted, you will know what you're doing wrong and you'll know how to fix it. But it will also give you the tools of how do you look at another person and ask yourself, how do I know that I can trust them? And here are this, those six components, and, and this is what I need to look at.
0: That's that's such a great science, because I'm thinking, you know, I, on the drive home after some of these network meetings, you know, I'm trying to keep my eyes on the road and not hit my head up against the windshield at the same time, because I'm thinking, okay, this person you know, was dressed well, you know, talked well, held themselves well, did all of these charismatic things that should have, maybe he's won people over that way before, but it didn't work for me. Yeah. And I could never really put words to why not.
1: You, you know, I'll just share with you one of the eight laws of trust, okay? And, and, and I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to think about someone that you really trust, you have that person in mind?
0: Mm hmm.
1: Okay. Do you trust them to fly the plane that you're going to board tomorrow? Yes. Is that person a pilot? Yes. Well, for all the people I asked, I had to choose it. Okay, then I'm going to use something else. Because we briefly you... had
0: this conversation before, because and, and other people who are listening don't know that my husband and I are both private pilots. So we've spent, you know, I've, I've flown in little, you know, spam cans with wings, basically, and you've flown the real thing, but... We've been pilot and co-pilot to each other, so (laughs) I'm sorry I snafooed your whole presentation again. Wrong
1: question, but (laughs) I want you to think about that same person. I'm going to assume that we're talking about your husband now. Yes. Do you trust him to perform brain surgery on you?
0: Absolutely not, because he's an engineer. (laughs) But
1: but, but wait, you you said you trusted him. See, trust is contextual. (laughs) It trust is. is also trust is also continuous. You, you know, I asked you the question, and I, I kind of I, I pulled you into it when I asked you, "Do you trust this person?" A question to which the answers are yes or no, but the answer really is how much. Right. So, one of the things that, that I, I do when I get to talk about trust being continuous and not binary is um, I I ask the audience. I tell them, you know, and and this happens to me, I forget my wallet at home, and I need to get out of the parking lot, and I'm going to have to pay on the exit, and I don't have money. Uh, Would anybody be willing to loan me $20, to lend me $20? And I promise you, as soon as I get home, uh, I'm going to put this in an envelope, and I'm going to send it back. I'm going to mail it to you. Uh, how many of you are willing to lend me $20? Raise your hand. And they raise their hands. And for the most part, it's almost all of them. And, and you know, if it's not all of them, I would go down to the audience and pick on the ones that did not raise their <laughs> hands. So, you know, it makes sense to say, to raise your hand. And then I asked, how about $100? How about $1,000? How about $2,000? One th- funny thing that happened to me, I was in, in front of an audience of about 500 people and I asked about $20. Pretty much everybody raised their hands. I asked about $100, you know, half... Lower their hands. I asked about a 1000 You know, there was one hand still at the back. And I'm like, whoa, this is interesting. How about you? I don't know her. I never met her before. How about $2,000? She still keeps her hand up. And I'm thinking to myself, man, before I go home today, I must have her name and telephone number and email address because that's the easiest $2,000 I can ever make. Absolutely. But trust is continuous. So it's not I trust you or I don't trust you. The question is, how much do I trust you? Right.
0: Well that makes sense because I wouldn't trust him to perform brain surgery but I would trust him to help me pick somebody who's qualified to do the brain surgery. So so yeah. And and for me in my business that's also part of staying in your lane. <laughs> you know, as a book writing business coach there are people out there who are marketing themselves as book writing business coaches and I get compared to them all the time. And I, first of all, I don't get sucked into that because I don't like comparisons. It's like, if you want to know what they do or don't do, call them. If you want to know what I do or don't do, let's talk about that. But, you know, it's somebody who wrote a book and the book did well. So now all of a sudden they're teaching it. That's not staying in your lane. I mean, so I I believe very strongly that we're each born with skills that direct us on that super highway to success and that we should stay in that lane. I guess that was the long way of saying that. I,
1: I don't. I don't think that that we were born with it. And th- this kind of goes okay. into something that that really was. Uh, remember that I started with creativity and and how what makes people creative. I think that there are four things that make a person creative or even successful in, in a specific area. Uh, and and you know maybe genetics is part of it. Maybe we do have a few things that lend themselves better to one occupation versus another, one service one offering versus another but another part of it is the things you have gone through from the moment you were born until today because those things did shape you you know we are the sum of our experiences the third one is um the environment in which you're in, and this goes directly into my, uh, specifically organizational environment, goes directly to my PhD research of the environmental culture that affects people's creativity. And I can't tell you how many of those elements that I I found had the statistical significance of less than 0.0001, which is really, really strong correlation. But then the fourth one are things that you can do right now. And I, I even developed the process. When, when that was my focus area, I developed the four-step process on how you increase the quantity and quality of your ideas. So bottom line is, I don't think that you were born to do one thing. I think it's a combination of, your genetics, or, or you know, certain things that you were born with, but it's also what have you gone through from the day you were mm-hmm. born until today? What is the environment in in which you operate, and certain things that you can do now to affect your success or failure in the specific area?
0: And and I hundred percent agree with you on that. And part of that, for me, when we're talking about trust. It's those environmental components or some of those other components as we're growing up that have people struggle with the ability to trust.
1: Yep. I agree.
0: So, well, we agree. Okay. Well, we're we're done here. (laughs) No, not really. Okay. So I have a question for you. You have said something that I find incredibly brilliant, of course. Um, to build trust based on a common enemy instead of common knowledge or experiences. What
1: man, did you, you read, you, you did your work. <laughs> I've been I mean. cyber
0: stalking you. I have. And, but I mean, I Apparently. love that. Because, I mean, I love that because somebody will look at you and they'll make an assumption right away and they want to build based on that. And sometimes the assumption's wrong But it also, I don't know, to me, it just, it seems creepy. I mean, why would you say to build that trust relationship or that trust on a common enemy? What does that mean and why?
1: So when I look at uh, those six components of trust uh, and, and, you know, without without digging too much into them, uh, the the three of them are more static or kind of a balance sheet type components and three of them are more dynamic, so kind of a profit and loss type components. Uh, The three that are balance sheet, to me uh, are competence, shared values, and fairness and symmetry. Those are kind of, you know, it is what it is. Uh, This is a snapshot of where we are. And the three dynamics one are the more transactional like kind of profit and loss, increased trust and reduced trust are the positivity, time, and intimacy of interactions. But the one that you're touching on actually comes out of shared values. And and I broke shared values into three components, universal, personal, and situational or circumstantial. So universal ones, I mean, you're not gonna trust someone who lies to you, right, does not tell you the truth, intentionally, not, you know, I didn't even know that I'm not telling you the truth, but intentionally not telling you the truth. You're not going to trust them. I'm not going to trust them. Nobody's going to trust them. That's universal. The second one is personal. So there's a funny, uh, not so funny, maybe, uh, story that that I share, and and that is... uh, You know, my daughters go to college, and uh, one of them once I noticed that when she signs up to classes, she goes by a website called Rate My Professors and she sees reviews from other anonymous reviews from other students who say, This is the college I took this class, this is when I took this class, this is the class that I took uh, without a name. Uh, and this is my impression, and you rank them one to five. Well, then I asked them, do I have a page like this? Because I Uh-oh. teach in a university here, a Southern Methodist University. Uh, I teach entrepreneurship. And uh, do I have a page? And we looked it up, and I do have a page. So we're looking at my page, and I see the last class that I taught, and I see a review that gives me five out of five. Awesome. You know, you got to take this class. I wish I could take more of those classes. Um, and, and you know, it's five out of five. And the reason right. I'm telling you this is, uh, not, not because I want to brag. Well, actually, because yeah, okay. I want to brag. Yeah. That's number <laughs> one it. is because I want to brag. Uh, it, it's, it's not because I, I want to share what my students feel about my classes and sell them. Well, actually, no, this, this is the second reason, but the, ther- <laughs> but the third reason is
0: that one not head. <laughs>
1: But there is that one, uh, one review, and that review was one out of five. So this is uh-huh. like you can't give a zero. So it's one out of five. And it says that this professor is arrogant, condescending, and so on, but an easy grader. So at least there was one positive. But one out of five. Here's the thing. I don't know who those students are because it's anonymous, but when I look at them, those two students took the same class at the same time. They sat in the same classroom One of them gives me a five, the other gives me a one, and the reason is because trust is personal. Trust is something that happens between you and me, Arlene. The fact that I trust you or that you trust me does not mean that other people will trust you or that other people will trust me. It's it's a one-on-one. But that's the second one. The third one, the one you asked about, is actually the third one. And this is a situational, circumstantial one. We can be, you and I can be in a situation that causes us to to have to trust each other more. And the one that you quoted in particular is one of the leading ones that I I quoted or cited. And that's the common enemy. So, for example, uh, if we are working on a project, uh, you know... And, and this project is subject to time crunch. Uh, we need to work really hard. There is a budget shortage. There, there are things like this. This is what a common enemy can be. It, it doesn't have to be the military. And the common enemy are well the people shooting at us from that direction. Actually, it really starts there. I mean, this is this is the strongest definition of an enemy. The fact that we have an enemy shooting at both of us increases the trust that we have in each other. Uh, The fact that we have a budget crunch, we're both on the same team, there's budget shortage that builds trust between us. There is a common enemy that both you and I are subject to and the bigger the impact of that common enemy is on us, on our success, on how we're satisfied with our job, increases the level of trust between us.
0: So the, the common enemy though, can be inanimate, like the budget, the time crunch, not having enough people on the team to get the job done in, you know, in the time frame that we have to do it. I was intrigued by this because when you said common enemy, the first thing I thought was, "Uh uh-oh, he's going to start talking about trash talking my competition, and that's not it at all. Because, nope. And I think that a lot of people make that mistake. They want to build their credibility or they think they're building trust with the client by trash-talking their competition. What say you, Mr. Solomon, Dr. Solomon?
1: Actually, it's funny because in one of the books, uh, I have a short series, a book series called Can I Trust You?, Uh, the first one that came out was called 50 plus one habits that will make you a trustworthy salesperson. The second one was 70 plus one habits that will make you a trustworthy uh, leader. And the last one was 67 plus one habits that will make you a trustworthy team member. So first of all, by the way, it's not that I can't add 50 plus one, 70 plus one, or 67 plus one. There is a special meaning for that plus one. But on the first one, the salesperson, 50 plus one habits that will make you a trustworthy salesperson. One of the first things that I talk about is don't trash your competition in front of a customer. Because the competition is your enemy. It's not your customer's enemy. And when you start trashing your competitor in front of a customer, you are not building trust with that customer.
0: Right. I I, I think that's petty and it's gossip. And, well, anyway, that's a whole other program. I love your plus one philosophy. I'm just saying because... To me, your whatever number plus one, that's all about, you know, giving them more than they expect. I mean, am I kind of on the right track there? Why do you do that? That's an one?
1: excellent point. That's an excellent point. That's Completely wrong. incorrect, though. But
0: <laughs> Fine. <laughs> the,
1: the plus one here is not, uh, you know, I... If people buy the books because they think the plus one means that I'm getting you something bonus, that's great. That wasn't the reason. Uh, The plus one is something that's common to all those books. Um, And I actually, one of the top 10 habits that I included in the book of trust is that plus one. And the plus one is, you know, I took you through a book with 50 habits that will make you trustworthy salesperson, but there's a plus one. All 50 Told you how to be more trustworthy by that other person. That plus one, which is the same for all books, is know when to give up. Know when to give up. Because I'm, Arlene, I'm going to do my best to be trusted by you. The only thing I can do, and I'm going to take you through uh, trust law number eight. Trust takes two sides. For you to trust me, uh, or the trust that you have in me, is the product of of your trustability, your willingness to trust other people in general, and my trustworthiness. Now, I can hardly do anything about the former, but I can do everything about the latter, which is why my focus is, how do I become more trustworthy? So let's say this, I'm going through the process, those seven step processes, I'm by the way, building an online class course right now on exactly that, how to be more trusted at work, and there are gonna be other derivatives. But essentially, I'm teaching you how to be trusted, how to be more trusted. Uh, let, Let me take it back. How to be more trustworthy, but that still doesn't mean that you are going to trust me. And so this plus one is know when to give up. I did everything. I did everything by the book. I followed the seven steps. I did them with high fidelity, yet you still don't trust me. You need to know when to give up. So Take salespeople. You need to know when this customer is just not going to trust you. Maybe you're going to learn from it and realize that you did do something wrong, and it does fall under those six. Maybe it's just that this customer will never trust you. It doesn't matter how trustworthy you really are.
0: So That's does that the plus then, one. Does that then become a matter of personality, something that you may or may not be able to change?
1: For the majority, the, the, the number one source of why this will never happen is that shared values element, and specifically the personal shared values of this element? You know, I, I'm I'm going to be honest with you here and tell you that one of someone that I hired once resigned because we had opposing political positions. I didn't care. I knew she had the opposite political uh, positions. Didn't bother me, but it bothered her. It bothered her to the point where she said, I can't work with someone who holds uh, these political positions. And it doesn't matter which one or what political positions we have. So it's a matter of differences on the personal level that fits into that personal values uh, that were higher, uh, that, that are very high in priority for one of the people, you know what, you just can't work, I, I can't work with someone who believes that,
0: right, well, it doesn't okay. matter what you do, yeah, so, yeah, you know, we're having so much fun, I'm running out of time, and I've got so much I still want to ask you, but you brought up a subject that I was going to ask about, do you think that a 24-7 news cycle and social media has destroyed our ability to trust or be trustworthy, um, Maybe damaged let is me a refine. Word than destroyed.
1: <laughs> let, let me refine this. I, I don't think that it reduced the ability to trust. I think that, uh, you know, someone, uh, I remember his last name was Dunbar, and he did the study that found that the The volume of your, uh, I think it was the prefrontal cortex, uh, the volume correlates to, and he actually built a formula, to the number of people that you can have in your network. And, you know, obviously, uh, he put the number at 150, which is what he called casual uh, friends, but then there's, you know, 50 of them you can... Trust more, five of them you can really, really trust, and, and so on. And, and there's a larger network. So, you know, if you look at LinkedIn or, or Facebook, uh, maybe I have 3,000 people that I call friends, but this is really Facebook friends. How many of them can I trust? Uh, I think that what social media has done, and it's not just social media, it's media in general, is they got to the point where there's this polarization where I can hear and listen only to the people who agree with me and that's called uh, confirmation bias Mm -hmm. um, or even incestuous simplification, which is another term for it. But um, I think that that's what happened. What happened is it actually, the way social media works now and, and, uh, and even the media, it helps me trust people who agree with me more, and trust those who don't agree with me less.
0: So it's been div- it's been divisive, but the trust is still there. It's just that we're relating, we're trusting with people who we relate with or we agree with, and not with yep. the people we don't. Okay, that yeah, and, and, that and I wrote about
1: sense. I wrote about it in the book of trust. I, I think that the level of trust that you have in you to spread among people you know is limited and fixed. And so the question is, how do you spread it around? And what social media and media in general have done is that they pulled people who agree with me into those 150 and pushed people who don't into outside of that group.
0: Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Well, I wanna move a little bit, change the subject a little bit because I am a book writing business coach. And what I do is I help people do what you've done now 13 times to write books that are powerful and profitable ways to build their business. Because I think that there's a credibility factor in there too, but I'm not going to put any more words in your mouth. I want to know from your perspective, why, you know, you're a busy person, you're a talented person, you've got great skills outside of book writing. What on earth would make you write one book, much less 13?
1: Have you thought about being a motivational speaker for (laughs) to to (laughs) discourage people from writing books. Yeah. Okay. I'm not going to write any more books. Because
0: what I hear from people is it's hard. It's lonely. It's this, it's that. And you know, it, but there's so much good payoff and with a book writing business coach like myself, I make, I try and make it fun. I try and make it easy. And you've done something that so many people tell me they can't do. And I disagree with them. So I want to know, Why did you decide it was important enough to do?
1: I think it's a personal preference. I mean, I would apply the same to reading books and not just writing books. I mean, it's uh, where where do you get your energy? Uh, You know, the the other day uh, when the Book of Trust came out, the first edition. This is funny. So the Book of Trust is the first time that the second edition right now, we're at the second edition. The second edition of this book came out the same year that the first edition did. Uh, and I'll tell you why, because okay. that would answer your question. But uh, I was out in the mail office, in the post office to to mail a few copies of my books. And, uh, you know, the post person, Paul Spann, uh, asked me uh, w- what's in it. And I said, it's books. And and he looks at me and he makes this uh, smart aleck comment. He asked, uh, did you read this book? I said, not only I read it, I even wrote it. <laughs> but uh, so um, to me, writing and speaking, and you know, maybe, maybe it's kind of a self-centered way because I'm uh, to, to talk about this because I'm, I'm really fascinated by trust. Writing and speaking helps me refine my thinking about trust. So you are benefiting. I, I mean, one of the things that you and, and your audience is benefiting from me talking here comes from the fact that i wrote the book because when i had to write it sit down and write it i had to you know things that maybe sounded so much better in my head all of a sudden when i reduced them to writing i'm like well that doesn't sound so great anymore so maybe i need to look at it a little differently and so does it add credibility 13 books five of them in second edition yes definitely it it adds credibility does it give me the ability to uh provide added value to my customers so I stand in front of a large organization maybe it's 150 people or or more and one of the things that I can give them is books Uh, so you know what even if I do a full day workshop there is no way that I go through the entire book in there but I can give you a book but the most for the most part it's the fact that while writing that book it helped me put things into perspective and and I refer back to my books uh, before I I prepared to something.
0: Right. So even in the technology and in the changes in the marketplace, you can still say I'm trustworthy because I'm going to deliver to you what I say I'm going to deliver to you. And I love that about you. So, Before we wrap it up, because we're running out of time, actually probably ran out of time, but I'm loving my conversation. So um, tell people where they can find you and connect with you and to hire you so that you can share your wisdom and your brilliance with them and their employees
1: okay so where you can find me uh, my official address is on the Millennium Falcon my most uh, comfortable place is in the front seat of an (laughs) FA-18 but to be more serious uh, where can you find me I think the easiest is to say just look up Yoram Solomon it's YoramSolomon.com you can find me on Instagram at Yoram Yoram Solomon Solomon. you can find me on Twitter at Yoram Yoram Solomon Solomon. you can find me on LinkedIn at Yoram Yoram Solomon Solomon S-O-L-O-M-O-N and Yoram is Mm Y-O-R-A-M and in case uh, you didn't see it uh, since this is a zoom recording guess what look right down here where you can see my email address which is yoram at the book of trust.com
0: oh yoram you're a crazy man and i mean that in the nicest possible way (laughs) we have well even if you
1: didn't (laughs)
0: we have so much fun when we get together it's not a surprise to me when you know our time runs out we'll have to do this again but thank you thank you thank you for your time today i really do appreciate it and i hope that the listeners cuz i know i have become more i think i'm going to be more attentive to how do i come off as more trustworthy so thank you for that so-
1: Let me just, first of all, thank you for having me. I I enjoy having those conversations uh, with you as well, and I'm glad that uh, your audience is going to uh, benefit from it. Uh, If there is one last thing that I can say to your audience is that the two most important questions, the answers to these two questions will have the biggest impact on your success or failure in your professional or personal lives. And these are the answers to the questions can I trust you and can you trust me?
0: Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Arlene. Absolutely. So Yorm's going to leave you with that and I'm going to leave you with this. So until next time, be mindful of the stories that you tell yourself. It's only you can determine what is or is not possible for you. Don't let the world dictate your story. You get to live your story every day. And when you're ready to write your story down in a book, contact me, Arlene Gale, Arlene at bookwritingbusiness.com. Go to my website, bookwritingbusiness.com and go to the freebies tab and see what kind of little jewels I have for you there. Until next time, go write your book. Thank you for joining Mindset Meets Mastery with Arlene Gale, the expert in helping people write business-building books. Join us every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time on BBS Radio when we'll talk more about how mindsets help or hinder success mastery. Please visit bookwritingbusiness.com to get more information on writing your professional or personal story.